Anybody? And I'm going to go ahead and ask Tim if he'll come up and read our scripture passage for this evening. Our uh, scripture reading for the night is uh, Luke 1, 39 through 56. And in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. Cheat on and move your book. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Father God, again, we thank you for this time. Uh, We ask as as we open uh, your word and as we look to it that you would, um, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through uh, your spirit working in us, um, God, as we have read in this passage, that you opened the mind and the understanding of, of Elizabeth in that moment. God, we ask that you would also open our minds and understandings as we read this text, that we would see what you would have us to see, that we would understand it rightly and that we would, um, God, know you better because of it and live our lives in a way that honors Jesus Christ. Uh, Help us to that end. Um, Bless us, Lord, and these things we ask uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you got your Bible again, if you're not there already, turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 39, starting in verse 39. Um, so, I, you know, I, as obviously as a pastor, I get to do weddings a lot. Um, there's a number of you in here who I have uh, uh, performed your your wedding, and, and that's one of the, the cool, fun things about um, ministry. Um, there's lots of hard stuff and stuff that you don't want to do, but but weddings are a lot of fun. Um, it's neat to be a part of people's lives in that day. And there was one time we were – I was – counseling a couple and we were having a conversation and we were talking about wedding stuff and you know there's the old sort of adage or uh whatever you call it the the little tradition of uh the bride is supposed to wear something old something new something borrowed something blue 
with a sixpence in their shoe is the last piece that sometimes people leave off or whatever. And so this girl kind of brought this thing up to me, and she said, she said, is it okay for me to have something that is two of those categories but one item? And I was like, I don't know. I've never thought about that before. Like, that's never occurred to me. Um, like, is that okay? Can you do that? So could it be something borrowed and something old? Or can it be something new but also something blue or whatever? Can you just, like, kill two birds with one stone? And I said, I didn't know. And so, actually, we went and looked it up, and we, it turns out you can. Like, the tradition says that that's fine. You can you can double up. I guess you can even tri- triple up in some cases, right? Um, but there's obviously two of those things that you can't mix. Um, it can't be something old. Uh, and it can't be something new at the same time, right? Those would have to be two separate items. Um, and I, and th- as I was looking at this sermon, that story just popped into my head because what we see here is something start to develop in this passage. Is, is you see something that is new being presented to us, right? Something new and different is happening um, in, in um, the working of God, right? Jesus... The virgin-born son of God is on his way. He is, he is imminent. He is approaching. Um, we've already been told that he will be, this, that be great in the Lord, that he will send the throne of, of King David, um, that his kingdom and his rule will have no end, that it will go on forever, right? Um, Jesus, like we said last week, is not just another prophet. He is some, someone different. Um, not only is, is the advent of the Messiah um, happening in an unlikely place, but it's happening among unlikely people, remember? And so we talked about those ideas of this, of this um, 13-year-old girl, um, this woman, um, elderly woman who's pastor prime. God is working in unlikely places, right? And so on one sense, it is something new that God is doing. But at the same time, it is also, that is only true to an extent. Because um, even though those things are unlikely in the eyes of the world, um, they are not necessarily unlikely in, in the way that God does things typically. Okay, so certainly the way God is working is not characterized by the way the world does things, right? Um, this, this coming to the throne of Jesus is not going to be the normal way that kings come to thrones, right? It's not going to be about um, an ascendancy by violence to power, right? So we talked a little bit about the history of Israel a couple weeks ago and, and the, the place that these, these characters that we're reading about find themselves, right? And so there's this long history of Israel being conquered by Assyria, and then the Assyri- Babylonians conquering the Assyrians, and then the Persians conquering the Babylonians, and then the Greeks um, conquering the Persians, and then the Romans conquering the Greeks, right? And there's this long line where Israel continues to be some sort of oppressed, at best kind of vassal state, right? And so there are generations of living under this one uh, regime change after another with very brief periods where they had independence and things like that, right? But a, a cycle of more power, more force, more violence over and over again. Well, right, so what we see here is something new is happening. God is flipping the script, you would say. Um, but the interesting thing is, is that it's only kind of flipping the script, right? It's flipping the way the world thinks things should go, but it's not flipping the way God works because God is the same, um, past, present, and future, right? God is the same always. This is always the way that God has worked. He's just sort of reiterating these things. He's he's, he's reemphasizing these things. Um, Yes, they're counterintuitive to the world, but they are entirely consistent with the way we see God acting all throughout the Scriptures. And so the, the, the sort of presenting issue, the thing that we see those ideas in, is in the character of these two ladies in the story, one Elizabeth and two Mary. Um, as we as we listen to them speak, and then as we turn to this sort of prophetic psalm, 
um, you could say, that, that Mary um, delivers, um, which is called, has been called throughout church history the Magnificat. Okay? And so what's interesting is this, is we begin to see the character of the kingdom that Christ is going to usher in, and moreover, we begin to see the character of Christ himself through the faithfulness of these ladies, okay? And so again, we talked about it several times now. This whole first couple chapters is like an overture, right? It is giving us a preview. It is introducing ideas and acclimating us to these these sort of themes that we're going to see throughout the ministry of Jesus and even throughout his his life, death, and resurrection, okay? And so in this section, um, we're, we're going to notice some specific things about the concept of humility, about exaltation, uh, and about the way God deals with the humble and with the proud. And all those things point to what his kingdom and what his character are actually like. But let's start in verse 39. Okay, so let's read that again real quick and just kind of be fresh. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town of Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. All right. So in this section, first off, we notice that the Holy Spirit is front and center, right? The Holy Spirit is a major actor in this section. Um, and the Spirit is doing what the Spirit always does. And that is the Spirit always points people to Jesus. That is, that is the function, the primary function of the Holy Spirit working in the world is to point people to Jesus. And that's exactly what the Spirit is doing here. We've already been told that John would be a prophet, mighty in the Lord, but that he would have the Holy Spirit upon him, even from his mother's womb, right? Which was completely a new kind of thing. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, a prophet would come along, or a king, or somebody, and the Bible would talk about the Holy Spirit descending on that person as an adult, or in a special circumstance, or, or something like that, during a unique time of worship. But for the case for John, John is going to have the Holy Spirit his entire life. In fact, even when he is in the womb, he will already have the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus and John meet for the first time in this story, in utero, okay? Um, they recognize each other even while they are in the womb. And it's the Spirit that is doing that. The Spirit reveals to John the presence of Jesus, um, and notice something, and this is just kind of the, these things that we pick up on as we read the scriptures. And it's something that I would encourage you to notice and take uh, account of, okay? Notice the way the Bible talks about things, because sometimes it answers questions that it's not intended to ask, but we learn things anyway. Notice how the Bible talks about these two persons in the wombs of Mary and Elizabeth. Right? It doesn't talk about them like they're lumps of tissue. It doesn't talk about them like they are even fetuses. Or it doesn't even use that language. Right? It talks about these two people as if they are fully formed persons that can perceive things, understand things. Um, they're not non-entities. Right? And obviously, this passage isn't talking about abortion. It's not talking. It's not thinking in those terms. And yet. The way it talks about these things tell us something, right? It gives us a clue as to how the Bible understands life when it's inside the womb. And so, but anyway, the Spirit 
is not just on John, because in this place, the Spirit descends on Elizabeth too. Um, and that Spirit reveals to her also who stands before her. Not only is it Mary, the mother of the Lord, but in her womb is the Lord himself, the Lord himself right? So notice a couple, again, just kind of little, little interesting things, little, little pieces of maybe trivia almost, but, but interesting things for us to take knowledge of, take notice of. Um, Elizabeth actually ends up being the first person to confess Christ as Lord. Have you ever thought about that? Like typically we think of it being Peter. There's the story later on in the scriptures where Jesus asks, who um, do people say that I am? And he says, hey, you're Elijah, one of the prophets, they say. And then he's like, who do you say that I am? And he says, hey, you're, you're the son of God. You're the Messiah. You are the Christ, right? And, and a lot of times we count that as the first time that somebody confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. But, but really... Um, it's, it's right here. Elizabeth is the first person to do that. You could even argue that John is the first person to recognize Jesus as Lord, um, even though he, he doesn't say anything vocally. Um, but Elizabeth recognizes him as Lord. And even the word that she uses is super important. That word Lord is the word, in, in Greek is the word kurios, all right? And it is the word that is used to translate the name of God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. Okay, and so now it can it can also mean more broadly just the, a, a lord is in the term of a ruler or something like that. But it's it's significant that she would use that word to describe um, Jesus in 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 Mary's womb. Okay, um, she is ascribing to him the same name that is used of of the divine name. All right. And so uh, that, that kind of sets the scene, right? The working of the Holy Spirit revealing these things um, to not only to, to John um, in the womb, but also to Elizabeth. But it's really in the way that these characters respond that you begin to see the emphasis that we're talking about. And the first thing that we notice is this, okay? The first thing that our attention is being drawn to, I think, is humility, the kingdom of Christ that is coming is going to be characterized by humility. The Christ who is coming is going to be characterized by humility. And we see that character played out in the lives uh, of these characters. So first off, notice Elizabeth. Because in terms of normal sort of societal categories, she is certainly the person of higher standing. Right. OK. Um, one, she is older. OK. And so the fact that this is a 13 year old girl and probably a 80 year old woman or something like that, there's there's a certain level of respect that is already um, supposed to be towards Elizabeth Two, her status as the wife and daughter of the priestly caste. Right. And so she is a she's an important person in terms of the society and culture um, in terms of standing. Right. Then on top of that, the fact that it's her home. Right. This is this is Mary has entered into her home as as the head of the household. She is sort of the I mean, she's the queen of that space. Right. Um, and yet. Even though Mary, by all worldly standards, would be inferior, right? She would be the less important person. That is not the way that we see Elizabeth interact with her, okay? Mary greets Elizabeth, the, the scripture says, um, in the customary way that you would expect, right? But they don't give any details of that because it's, it's, it's relatively insignificant for this, okay? But it pays a lot of attention to how Elizabeth responds to Mary. And so instead, um, Elizabeth, instead of focusing on... Um, her own honor or her own exaltation, right? Instead, she focuses on Mary's. Um, again, 
80-year-old woman, 13-year-old girl. Um, she doesn't focus on the miraculous child that is, is within her womb at that moment. She f- focuses on the miraculous child that is in Mary's. Um, uh, it's not on Mary's, uh, it's not Mary's honor to be welcomed into a priestly home, which would be, um, but instead it's Elizabeth's honor to host the mother of the Lord and the Lord himself. And moreover, it's not that Elizabeth has been blessed by believing the Lord's words through her, even though God gave her a prophecy and she trusted in it, that, that happened. But instead she focuses on the fact that Mary is blessed because she has believed the prophecy of the Lord um, and she has believed this revelation that's been given to her. Okay, Elizabeth recognizes something in that moment. Again, through the power of the Holy Spirit, just as her son will later say, I must decrease and he must increase. Right? Um, when Peter confesses Jesus Christ as Lord later on in the scriptures. Do you remember what happens? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of of God. And and Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, right? The Spirit revealed this to you. The reason why you know this, Peter, is not because you're a smart guy and you get it, right? The reason you understand this is because the Spirit is working in you and it is directing you to this knowledge. The same thing is happening here, and it's directing her not only to the knowledge of Jesus, but it is also conforming her character, right? She is responding in a right way through the working of the Spirit. She is responding in humility, even though she deserves, she's in a different, she's in a higher kind of position of that. And so she sort of introduces this theme of humility um, that God desires of his people. But, the, but then we watch, and in the, in the, as the story progresses, Mary expands that theme of humility. Um, because true humility is not just about taking a step back, you could say, Right, that's exactly what Elizabeth does. She she takes a step back from her what she deserves, you could say. But humility is never just about taking a step back. Okay, humility is always about, and probably more so, about reverence for another. It's about lifting somebody else up first. All right. And so what I mean by that is this: Look at verse forty-six. So when she starts this this psalm, this song um, that's called the Magnificat. It says, verse 46, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So probably some of us are familiar with the C.S. Lewis quote, um, and it is the line that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less, right? Probably some of us have heard that phrase before. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less, okay? And so what does that mean? Humility is, is largely about self-forgetfulness, okay? It's about, um, it's about seeing the greatness and the goodness of something that is greater than you are and then making much of that. That's what humility looks like, okay? And again, our culture shifts that a lot of times. Our culture makes humility about us stepping backwards. But that's not the first step of humility, not even the most important step of humility. Humility is about acknowledging something that is better and greater than you and exalting it, lifting it up. Mary's soul, she says, magnifies the Lord, okay? Um, that's where we get the name Magnificat, right? It's, it's from that word magnifies, that idea. And the definition of that, that, that Greek word can have a bunch of different meanings. This is actually the only place that it's used, that it's translated magnified. But it has things like this. It means to display something, 
to lengthen something, to enlarge something, to hold something up as esteemed, um, to magnify that, right? And so we think about when you're, when you're playing with a magnifying glass, right? When you magnify something, you don't actually make it bigger. Right? You don't change the size of something. Mary's incapable of doing that with the glory of God, right? She cannot add to the glory of God, but she can shine a light on it, right? She can make it be seen as bigger in the moment. And that's what she's talking about. She's saying, my soul, my spirit, my attitude, my focus magnifies the Lord, right? It lifts God up as holy and better and good and glorious and gracious, Mary's humility isn't like, woe is me, mopey, okay? It's not like, well, I'm just no good and I can't do anything right, right? That's not the kind of of humility she has. It is enraptured. It is amazed by the glory and the grace of God in her life, okay? And so, um, again, that's what true humility starts with. It doesn't start with you taking a step back. It starts with you lifting up somebody in front of you that is better and more important than yourself, all right? But at the same time, it does still recognize, it's honest about your own place in the grand scheme of things. And so in verse 48, Mary in her, in, in his prayer, she, she acknowledges, she says, for he has looked on my what? My humble estate, on the humble estate of his servant. Okay? So she basically is saying, look, God is awesome, but it is no less true that comparatively I am not. Awesome. Okay. So, so there is a stepping back. Like we don't want to ignore that, but it's not the main thing. It's not the first thing. And so Mary says, God is incredible. I'm going to lift him up in front of me. And then I am also going to acknowledge who I am and the reality of my situation. Um, some of you are probably uh, familiar with Louis Giglio, right? He's a, uh, he's a pastor. He, he preaches at passion, the passion conferences. He's a, he's a pastor in Atlanta. Um, and he's got a sermon where he's talking about the immensity of the universe and how big it is and how, you know, just that, that in, in compared to the size of the universe, we are like these infinitesimal little specks, right? Like you are, I mean, when you count the immensity of everything, we are these, these tiny, just little dots, um, not even dots in the universe. And, and at one point he says, I'm not trying to make you feel small. I'm trying to make you realize that you are small. Okay. Um, that's kind of this idea that, that, that we, we see in this thing, right? When, when she says, God has looked on me in my humble estate, okay? Like she's not putting on airs in any way. She recognizes the truth of her life and that she is a, a girl of relative insignificance from an insignificant place uh, of in, insignificant people, right? She's not something special. She recognizes that. What makes her special is the grace that God has shown to her. Um, and, and like we said last week, and she faithfully responds to that grace when God does it. She is ordinary, okay? And so maybe another way to say it would be this. is Humility always kind of has two sides. Um, and I'll use completely different words but have the same ideas. There's always a love side to humility, and there's always a repentance side to humility. There's a love side because it sees the good and the beauty and the importance in somebody else and says, that person's important. I'm going to lift that person up. I see what is good and best about that person, and I'm going to exalt it, right? And then at the same time, it repents. And by repent, I mean it's honest about its own relative importance in the grand scheme of things. It agrees with God about its own shortcomings. And the thing that to notice is this. The proud always leave one of those two things off. 
The proud either don't love or don't repent. The proud either does not acknowledge the good in others or refuses to see themselves in the right light, right? And you can do it in either ways, right? The proud don't have to do both of those things. The proud can do either of those things. But Mary responds in a way that is truly humble, exalting God and at the same time humbling herself, being honest about her own situation. But it does more than that because we, we as, as Mary continues to talk, we see that sort of the, the equation of this whole thing, the calculus of humility is, is, again, maybe not exactly what we would have expected. Because look at verse, the second half of verse 48 and 49 and 50. She says, For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Which honestly sounds a little less than humble in some ways, right? Like, doesn't that sound like she's sort of like, man, from now on, like I'm like the most important lady ever. Um, like it sounds un, not, not humble, right, in some ways, at least at first glance. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. But see, here's the thing, is, is that we, as we look at this, this larger picture, the Bible teaches this kind of this new math. You could say, you know, we all make jokes about new math. There's a new math that comes to us in the scriptures. Humility leads to exaltation. Okay, that's the new math. Ordinarily, the way the world works, it says power leads to exaltation. Humility leads to being stepped on. But the new math of, of the kingdom of Christ says, no, humility is what will lead you to exaltation. She recognizes this, right? She said, I have, I have recognized my humble estate. Um, I am a person of no significance, and yet God has been gracious to me. And in my humility, I have been exalted. I will be recognized throughout generations as someone who has been lifted up and blessed and specially um, used by the Lord. God rewards humility, but graciously, not because you deserve it, right? Not because you're like, cool, I did my certain number of humble deeds, and now I expect to be exalted by God. That's not the way it works, right? But we do know that in the way God usually works in the world, he is merciful and generous, and he rewards in mighty ways those who have humbled themselves and lived in humility towards others. The humble will be exalted, right? We see that all through the Bible. The last will be first. The meek will inherit the earth. We, we see all these kind of uh, recurring um, statements of that, right? Exaltation goes hand in hand with humility, which, again, is the opposite of the way the world works. But it's completely consistent with the way that we see God working throughout the Scriptures, right? God's doing that all the time. People are humble, and then God exalts them. It happens in the life of David. It happens in all kinds of places in, 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 in the Old Testament. Um, but this math kind of works in both ways because that's not the end of it. Not only will the humble be exalted, but she also tells us that the exalted are going to be humbled one day. So verse 51, there is a reversal of fortunes coming for the world. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. 
Okay, And so there is this reversal coming where, where God says those who have had their good things in this life and have taken advantage of those things and have not used them in the service of the kingdom, um, those people are going to be humbled, right? I'm going to bring them down. I'm going to take what they have from them. But those who have been humble and have uh, rightly engaged with me, I'm going to exalt those people and bring them up. The coming Messiah is going to usher in this sort of new era. A new way of doing things that will include the humbling of the proud. And again, in some ways you go, is, is that a new thing that's coming? And the answer is, well, kind of. It's always the way that God has worked, right? But, but what we see is that in the coming of Christ, there's going to be a new fulfillment of that. There's going to be a new fullness of that reality. Um, all through the Old Testament, you see the proud being humbled, right? We've even talked about some of those stories in, in the last few months and, and year or so. Jacob was humbled, right? His hip was knocked out of so- socket. Probably why? As a picture of his self-reliance. The fact that he would not submit. He would not count on God alone. And so Jacob was humbled. Manasseh, the king of Israel, is humbled because of his rebellion. Nebuchadnezzar, the story that we did in Sunday school together with the, uh, with the youth this morning. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled in his pride, right? Um, we see these pictures all through the scriptures. Pride comes before the fall. That's the way God engages with his world. You know the word hubris, right? You know the word hubris? Greek concept, which is cool, because notice that. The Greeks recognized something. They recognized that if you walk around in excessive pride, something's coming, right? Um, you cannot walk around and live that way and not expect some sort of judgment to come upon you. I was, I was looking at a, a definition of hubris, and it was a cool little, it said, it, it's excessive pride that leads to your nemesis, and I went, nemesis, that's the word that means like your adversary, right? It's like your arch enemy or whatever. But that's only one definition of, an, of, a, of a nemesis. What nemesis actually means is it means retribution. It means you're going to get what's coming to you. That's why the person who is your arch enemy can be your nemesis because he's the guy fighting against you or whatever. But the word nemesis itself means you're going to get what's coming to you, okay? The Greeks recognized that concept not only in life but in literature and all these different things, and they said there's this thing, this force in the universe called hubris. If you go around acting exalted, you're going to be brought down, okay? And the reason that they noticed that is because that's the way God works, God works that way in the world, that those who exalt themselves and use their power and influence to, to oppress other people, God judges that eventually and brings those people down and humbles them um, in their lives. And so Mary um, recognizes that, right? And she's, she's sort of explaining these things and telling us as, the, as Christ is coming, he is going to do something new. He's going to set up this new order, and yet at the same time, it's not new. It's the way things have always been. It is this new and old thing that is happening, and yet at the same time, it is, um, it is being done in a fuller way, that God in Jesus Christ is going to show these things to be true in a unique and exalted way. Mary recognizes that, right? Um, and she recognizes that God is doing just the same things he's always done. And so she references that idea in verse 54 and 55. She says, you know what God is doing? God has helped his servant Israel. He has remembered his mercy. Just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever, right? He, she's looking backwards and saying, 
God's been talking about this stuff for all of history. He's been talking about this stuff through all of his word. He's made these promises to his nation. He's made these promises even all the way back to the beginning of our nation with with Father Abraham, right? God has always been acting this way and always been intending to do this. He hasn't completely changed the way he's doing it. He's just showing up now, and it is going to be escalated, right? It's going to be Jesus is going to bring this thing on um, in a, in a, in a uh, an even greater extent. And the reason why that is the case is because God has promised these things, right? He's prepared these things for his people. For generations, he's bringing, been bringing this thing um, to bear. But the thing is, is that's because... God's character doesn't change, right? God hasn't, and, and there's a sense in which God doesn't do new things, right? Now, obviously, the Bible talks about him doing new things. Um, Jesus coming to earth is a new thing. But there's also a, a, a way in which God doesn't new, do new things because God never changes. God is always the same God. He's always been the exact same God he's always been. So the way he is engaged with the world has always been the same way. God has always extended grace to his people through faith. Sometimes we think of that as a New Testament idea. They used to work by law, and now he works by grace. That's not right. God has always worked by grace. Okay? We find that out when, when, when speaking of Abraham, right? When Abraham, it says, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, right? He trusted, he believed, he had faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God has always been acting the same way. And so what we notice is that God's character is finally being shown in, in, in kind of a full way in the coming of Jesus Christ. We talked about some of you, a few of you were at the Trinity study this last week. Um, and so I hope if you've been reading that book, you'll notice the chapter, I think it's chapter two, maybe chapter three, where it begins talking about the Babylonian god Marduk. So you might remember that. A few of you who were here this week, you remembered it, right? So Marduk is this, the ultimate god of the Babylonians, okay? And there's a place in one of the writings of the Babylonians, why did God, why did Marduk create mankind? And the answer was that he needed slaves. He needed servants to serve him so that he could go about, you know, just like chilling in Babylonian heaven or whatever, right? And, and, and humans could go about their business of toiling to provide things for Marduk, right? And then this, that kind of went a level down because then the kings of that world could say, hey, Babylonian people, you were enslaved because I'm the leader of this people. Just, we're all slaves to Marduk, but you're slaves to me, and there's these gradations of this stuff. Um, Marduk created to subjugate, right? To make people his subjects. That is not the Trinitarian God that we worship, right? He does not create out of a need for servants, out of a need for slaves, really out of a need for anything. That's not why God has brought us into existence. On the contrary, we read in the scriptures that God is love, right? God is experiencing perfect fellowship and union and love between the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, for all, all of eternity. And out of that love, out of that, that perfect communion with each other, it, it's like there's an overflow, an expression of that, a desire to bring other beings into that love. And so out of that, God creates. Not because he needs us, but almost, I think the way humans procreate is, is a reflection of that. We don't 
bring children into the world because we're like, oh, man, I, gotta, I need something, right? Okay, at least we, hopefully we don't. Sometimes that probably happens with humans, right? But, but what happens is, is it's an overflow of the love and, and unity and, and a commitment of a husband and wife, right? And so they bring new life into the world, um, not, as a, not as because they need something, but because they want to share their love and, and have it grow. God creates in the same way, or actually it's the other way around. We create because we are emulating God. God's love overflows, and out of that, he creates us. He makes a comment, again, a C.S. Lewis quote, and um, he talks about this idea where as God creates us, God is not looking, he is looking to have, he's creating these people who he will eventually make his sons. Okay, and daughters, right? He is not looking, uh, the line goes, he is not looking for cattle to eventually become food. He is looking for servants who will eventually become sons. Okay, that's the picture that we have. This God of humility and love is pouring himself out because he wants more for us. He wants good for us. He wants blessing for us. He has no intention of domineering us in any way, he brings us lovingly and faithfully into his fellowship. Um, he doesn't need us for anything, right? In the Psalms, it tells us, he says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't ask you, okay? I wouldn't tell you about it. I'm not like Marduk, right? I don't need you going out and growing crops and making sacrifices to me to feed me somehow. I don't need anything from you. I want you, right? I have, my love has poured out, and it has overflowed in, into your lives. And so the love of the Trinity, that self-giving love and sharing and serving love, overflows into all of creation. So much so that when we sinned, even, when we fell away, what does God do? God does not act from a domineering perspective, stance, right? He does not um, act out of, of an anger, and yet what does he do? He, he comes to us, right? He reaches out in humility and in love to forgive us. More than that, um, the infinite God of the universe becomes a servant, right? Steps down out of heaven and takes on flesh, and not just flesh, but the flesh of, of an obscure man in an obscure country, right? And not just an obscure man, um, but, but a servant, and not just a servant, but someone condemned to death, and not just somebody condemned to death, but somebody condemned to death on a cross as a criminal, right? Jesus humbles himself, okay? Think about that for a second. God humbles himself. God's character is to be a servant and to step down out of his exaltation and to serve us, these little specks in an infinite universe, Right, But why does he do that? Because that's the kind of God he is, and that is the character that he expects us to emulate. Right, And when Jesus does that, when Jesus gives up his life that way, what does the Bible tell us? It says, because of these things, because he was obedient even from, to the point of death, what has God done? God has exalted him above all, everyone else and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Right? That is what Jesus is worthy of because he humbled himself. Jesus humbles himself and that he is exalted, right? And it's the same thing for us. That is the picture of not only character for us, but it is Luke's introductory picture into the kingdom of God. If you thought Jesus was going to show up like slinging fists or whatever and get in his way because he's God and he's powerful and he can do what he wants, right? 
you misunderstand the character of God, you misunderstand his people, and you misunderstand his kingdom because that's not what it looks like. But if you come to the Lord in humility, recognizing your sin, recognizing his grace and glory, not only will he accept you, but he will exalt you. And you will be his and be part of his family and be welcomed into his kingdom forever. That's the promise that we have. And that's the thing that he is hinting at. You're seeing little glimpses of it right now, right? Obviously you go, man, I think you said more than is in that text, Ash. And I did um, because these things are being glimpsed. But they begin, uh, as we continue to go further through Luke, these ideas continue to play out. The overture becomes the rest of the musical that we're hearing. So anyway, right now, let's go to the Lord in prayer, okay? And so again, I think those, man, what, what perfect themes as we are in this Advent season, right? As we are, as we're meditating on these things and thinking about the way God has designed um, us, the way that we emulate his character. What does that look like? How do we um, live our lives in humility, not only before God, but before other people? It begins with acknowledging that other people are more important than us, that God is more important than us, that my needs are not primary, that other people's good is more important than my own, and recognizing my place in this whole thing, and, and then taking a step back. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Just, I, I don't know what the exactly you should be praying about. Um, ask the Lord to, to talk to you in these things, right? To show you places in your life, um, your, your marriage, um, the way you raise your kids, um, your workplace, um, where uh, you are living in a way that is not kingdom looking, right? Not kingdom oriented. Um, it is not characterized by the humility that comes from Christ, but it is characterized by um, the attitude of the world. So let's go do that right now. Father God, that you would answer this simple prayer. God, that you would make us recognize that you are God and that we are not. God, that you would be lifted up in our lives and our hearts and our minds as holy and exalted. God, that we would recognize that we are bankrupt in spirit. God, that we are mourners, that we are meek. God, would you work these things in our hearts? God, and as we are faithful um, to what you have called us to, God, that you would welcome us to yourself, that you would exalt us, um, and that we be in, in right relationship with you. Um, God, and we would know and share in your glory. Uh, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing our closing hymn with us.